0: Hello, I'm Lydia. And I'm Chris. Welcome to Coffee Rise and Questions. This, this
1: podcast features rice. stories from the people we got to know while traveling. Hello and Because
0: everyone to has a story to tell. Of Curry Again, I did it.
1: <laughs> uh, hello and welcome to questions um thank you very much for tuning in i'm christoph hello
0: and, and i'm lydia hello and, um, hey <laughs> and you're lydia right
1: yeah i wanted to say that uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, our timing is uh, marvelous as always
0: just a bit sleepy i think yeah. a little bit right
1: yeah that's the uh, the island life that makes you very sleepy and me too Um, because we right now are in northern Sulawesi and um, here we met someone very cool, very nice, very talkative and very interesting Uh, and her name is Stephanie Garvin. She works for the Togian Conservation Foundation and um, for anyone who doesn't know and that I guess could be a lot of our listeners, the Togians are uh, a group of islands in the middle of Sulawesi uh where we spent some time um yeah some days ago basically yes and um we met her there in our yeah in our hotel in our resort and uh she was having yeah lunch with us and was telling a lot of very interesting stuff so we um Lydia and I we just like locked eye, locked eyes, uh, we looked at each other over the food, and then okay, yeah, we have to ask her for um, for an interview for our podcast, and yeah, that's what we did
0: yeah, and the Togan islands, they are very remote, um, as Christoph said, and yeah, kind of central Sulawesi, and it takes a couple of hours, uh, up to thirty hours per like with a boat and. Uh, a taxi to to actually get there, so it's very remote, Uh, there are a couple of islands um, and pretty unique uh, landscape in the ocean I would say, and no internet connection, so it's actually like paradise and yeah, and Stephanie works that this paradise is actually staying paradise and that um, tourism can be there like in a sustainable way. That the reef um, is not dying so fast or can actually be protected somehow and she speaks the local language i mean bahasa indonesia um, every island also speaks its own language but she has a way to communicate with the um yeah people that live on the island and has like very valuable insights about the whole culture about the whole mindset of the people and the region so it was very interesting to talk with her
1: yeah and, yeah. so is there anything else? I'm sure I'm forgetting everything every time, but uh i'm i'm think I'm thinking that's it right yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean if you have a chance to go to Sulawesi, go to Sulawesi like it's very very unique and beautiful. We've spent i think four weeks four weeks here now yeah. and still going, so it's from um nature to from water to mountains to everything it's everything. Volcanoes,
1: very unique cultures Uh, I think one of the best um, things you can see in Indonesia regarding um, like the underwater life Mm -hmm. Um, so it's totally comparable to I don't know for example Komodo Island which uh, seems to be or which apparently is like one of the best places to be we uh, went snorkeling here yesterday and we saw like in between 15 and 20 totals.
0: Yeah, but so. now we're somewhere else. We're now in, um, on the island of yeah, yeah. just for the listeners. So we're not on the Togen Islands anymore. We're on a different island close to Ma- Mon- Manado in the north.
1: There's a lot of islands around. There's there, a
0: lot yeah. of islands around and lots of sea creatures to see, friendly yeah. people. So it's, um, yeah. it's been an amazing couple of weeks.
1: And it's only like one to two hours away from Bali. So if if you want to get out from like the touristic stress of Bali, uh, Sulawesi could be the place to be actually for you guys. And if you're in for a bit of adventure, um, including uh, 50 hour bus rides and... uh, 10 15, hour. 15
0: right not fifty. 15 right? yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: but sometimes I mean, it does, like
0: 50 hours sometimes it
1: sometimes does feel like 50 hours yeah
0: yeah
1: all right guys then uh without any further ado um here is stephanie garvin talking to us um with a lot of interesting stories from the togan conservation foundation um yeah enjoy have
0: fun with the interview
1: have fun bye guys
0: Welcome to another episode of Coffee, Rice and Questions. I'm Lydia and I'm sitting here together with Chris. Hello. And our guest, Stephanie. Hello. We met her in our guest house and uh, yeah, we thought you're just a quite interesting woman to tell a good story about the Togan Islands on Sulawesi, where we are right now. And you work in conversation, conversation, yeah.
1: Right. <laughs> <laughs> so um, maybe you can tell us when when did you arrive here on the Tongan Islands, which is like uh, located in the centre of Sulawesi, just for the people who don't know where it is.
2: So I travelled here a couple of times as a tourist, first in 2009 and then again in 2017, but came back to start working in conservation in January of 2018. So I've been here most of the time since then. I do have to occasionally go out to work, but. Yeah, since January 2018 until now we're focusing on working together with the local villages and also the resorts and government.
0: Okay,
1: and you, what would you say is like the main concern for for, for you here? What is it all about, your work? Um,
2: I think there are many, uh, and they're very similar to what's been seen around the world. Um, Forest loss, uh, watersheds being disrupted, not enough fresh water coral loss, biodiversity loss. So those are the main things that we're tending to focus on Mm -hmm. at the moment. Um, Obviously, they have an impact on not just the wildlife, but also the humans that that live here. Um, And if they're not addressed, then, yeah, that that will become much more serious in the future. Um, Given there's still a lot of biodiversity here and a lot of endemic animals, um, it's what's known as a biodiversity hotspot. Um, so these, in terms of conservation, are probably the most important places in order to try and uh, first do some action to, to make sure that those species don't become extinct hmm. because they can't be reintroduced from other areas.
0: Have you always done that kind of work?
2: For the last 12 years I've been involved in yeah. conservation.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, I've been travelling and, and volunteering for most of the last 12 years. Um, in various projects I've done a lot of work in forestry regenerative farming this is the first project that I've done that also focuses on marine conservation Um, but I was a diver since I was 18 so I always had an interest, Mm -hmm. I just didn't know much about it Uh, so now I have an opportunity to focus also on marine conservation which is a new departure for me which is great, It, it feeds my need for learning something new all the time
0: but you're not a marine biologist?
2: I'm not a marine biologist. Yeah. I actually studied psychology. Okay. Um, and my background is in community development work. Hmm. So I've traditionally, over the last 25 years, I've been working with communities to improve their quality of life or address issues in the, hmm. in the community. So it's the same thing here, but the focus is conservation and, hmm. and addressing ecological degradation of, of their region, which ultimately has a big impact on them. So, yeah, behavior change, um, capacity building, all those things have been a theme, a theme throughout my work and I'm just applying it now, in this case, to conservation.
1: What, do you, what would you say, what is like the, the grade or the level of awareness of, of the people living here on the Togian Islands regarding the, the degradation of the coral, for example?
2: Um, there's a certain level of awareness, particularly among fishermen. Who obviously spend every day on the reefs. They're searching for fish. They know, they know that fish numbers are decreasing. They're having to go further and further from their villages to get their catches, and mm. um, their income is is reducing. So there's that level of awareness, but there's not an awareness of the causes of that. Um, so the education system here doesn't really provide people with a good basis in science. Um, Education here tends to focus more on language, maths, religion. Those, those would be the key, key topics, I guess. Um, so we have a role to play in helping, helping the locals understand what's happening and why it's happening and how they can get together in order to address that and improve things for the future.
0: How big is your organisation right It's very
2: tiny right yeah. now. <laughs> <laughs> um, at the moment, we have six directors who are all mm-hmm. local people. Mm. Uh, one is from Ampana, the rest are, are around the islands. I'm the only full-time volunteer. Mm. We don't yet have any staff, although we hope to soon. Yeah. Um, and then we bring in other volunteers for specific projects as needed. Um, it would be great to increase our team, so it's not wholly reliant on me being here, um, as I do occasionally have to go out sometimes. Mm. But um, slowly we're building. It's just a new organisation we founded in December of last year. Uh, so we're not quite officially a year old, although I've been working almost two years in the islands. We did some work first to see how was the response before we went to the expense of setting up an, an actual organization. Um, so, yeah, we're growing and there's a lot of interest, um, but we don't yet have the funding or resources to put teams uh, teams in place full time. So, yeah, we're very much um, wholly funded by volunteer effort at the moment.
1: It also sounded like there's this huge variety of different projects you have because when we talk it's like we're talking about something and you go like yes yeah, that's also something we want to do or <laughs> either it's something we already do or something that's planned like in the far future uh, it seems like it's there's a lot of stuff to do here
2: there's a lot of stuff to do and we're already doing a lot despite the fact that we don't have any funding um i've been talking to a potential funder who asked what are we doing and i actually sat down and wrote down everything that we've done over the last two years And it was quite amazing what we were able to achieve even without any funding. Mm. Um, So yeah, that's included planting a thousand trees this year as part of a watershed restoration and reforestation project. We've done some educational stuff, we've um, done some economic development stuff with a few villages, teaching them how to use their resources um, in another way that that helps to improve their incomes and address poverty here. We've just done a three-week cleanup of Crown of Thorns on the reef um, and also work with several resorts, helping them green their resorts and, and become more ecologically focused. Um, mm. So there's lots going on. Mm. And, you know, it's not always necessary to have huge amounts of funding in order to be effective, uh, especially when you're working with volunteers who are, who are committed to a cause. So, Yeah plenty going on but a lot more to do.
1: <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> how
0: how you de- do you decide when you have so many projects like what is the most pressing one or how does that develop? I mean like sometimes maybe you talk to people and then you decide maybe there's like something else that is going on right at the moment. Can you switch then easily to another project or how fluent is all that work?
2: Um, largely it depends on what resources are available to us in order to carry out a project. Mm. Um, So, without our own funding, we're dependent on cooperation with um, other people or other organisations. So, it may be that uh, somebody expresses an interest as a volunteer who has a particular skill and that's already on our list of things that we'd like to do. So, you know, we may may suddenly develop a project around that just based on that unique opportunity we have at that moment. Obviously, we have a list of priorities of, of things that we think are most important to address first. Uh, but unless we have the necessary resources, we can't, we can't always prioritize those projects. Um, for the foundation, it's for us, it's most important to halt the current degradation before we start to rebuild the ecosystems. Mm-hmm. So those kinds of things for us would take priority, hence why we've just done the Crown of Thorns project. Mm. Um, so that's a big threat to the reefs. Mm. Um, and something that's very easily prevented, provided you have cooperation with people who also have a stakehold in the reefs so our resorts just sponsored all of our food and accommodation and boats and dive gear for volunteers and we were able to bring in the volunteers and coordinate the project so like that we can continue with many different things but it does mean trying to get stakeholders to work together which is something that they've not traditionally been very used to doing in here um, so that's that's a new effort and it's working very well in some respects.
1: Maybe just for the explanation, what's the crown of thorns? Because we obviously know, but people listening, they might be... like, Is it like a new HBO series after <laughs> Game of Thrones or something? <laughs> yeah. but, uh, so that's like a, a, a sea star, right?
2: Yes, it's a, it's a species of um, starfish that eats coral. Um, and they have a, a very important function in the reef in that they trim the weedy corals, the ones that grow the fastest. Uh, so that's their preferred source of food. Unfortunately, around the world, they're exploding in populations um, due to several different factors, uh, and this has led to mass coral loss, so the, the reefs can't support that, that size of population, and the result is, is death of the reef. Um, so many reefs around the world are being lost to these starfish, so we're trying to return the population back to normal, uh, not trying to eliminate them because they are important, but just trying to normalise the populations.
1: So you just go for, for a dive or you go snorkeling and you pick them up by hand? Or like with the bamboo? With tongue, the tongs, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah,
2: because they are thorny and yeah, they do, they do tend to irritate if they sting. So, um, yeah, we collect them, put them into bags and, and remove them from the reefs one by one. Uh, there are some countries in the world that are injecting them with vinegar. Um, but that for us is not necessarily the best method. It's more expensive. It requires a certain amount of expertise. We're a little bit concerned about injecting uh, acidifying oceans with lots of, uh, mm. lots of acid around our reefs and it's difficult when you're working with large teams of people to know which ones have already been injected, so by lifting them f- for us, that's, that's a recommended method in developing countries, so that's the one we've been going
1: What, what do you do with them after you've uh, put them out of the ocean?
2: So uh, usually they're either buried or burned, um, but right now the foundation is doing some research to see if they can be used to make an organic fertilizer. Uh, If we're successful in this, then we could potentially generate enough income to pay the locals to collect them themselves. So it's difficult for the locals to take a day off from fishing in order to help with these collections, because at the end of the day they still need to get money to feed their families and they very much live day to day. So we did pay uh, some locals to help us in Malengi with uh, donations that guests had left with Bahia to Mini Resort. So they were able to pay every day three to four local uh, freedivers to, um, to help us collect. And that really boosted the numbers that we were able to collect on the reefs there. And of course the locals being, um, being fishermen and Bajo people are expert freedivers. You know, they can stay down a lot longer than, than most of us could. So they really helped.
1: Hmm. Okay, so but, but also in this case, regarding the coral, you have like the fishermen, and they understand okay, there's like dwindling fish population, and there's something to change, uh, or there maybe has something to change. But it's also like, is there do do they see like ecotourism, for example, as an as an alternative option uh, when it comes to earning money, or is it? Something that other people do, and I'm a fisherman, and my family is like fishermen since generations, and there's not much else for, for us to to aspire to, aspire to in in quotes, of course. But mm-hmm. um, so is it like this? Do they see it as an option, like tourism, for
2: example? Some of them do, and a lot of villagers have um, have talked to me about developing tourism in their villages. Um, they may not know the routes to um to develop that um for example a village called me and said we want to become a tourist village and i said okay so what is there to see there do you have a Hmm. beach do you have you know what what have you got to showcase to tourists um and they hadn't really thought about that Hmm. so you know i think they they know that there's money and income to be made in tourism but they don't necessarily have the capacity or skills or even know what foreign tourists would like Hmm. um and I think that especially applies to our government, you know. Often I see them doing projects that actually foreign tourists don't like so much, but they're really gearing them towards the local tastes. Um, so also trying to work with government, because 95% of our tourists come from outside Indonesia. We we have a small domestic tourist market here. Um, so we're trying to advise them as well as to projects that would be suitable. So I've scouted out... Uh, a few locations around the togians with local communities that are interested in showcasing their culture and culture is something that's really trending in tourism at the moment people are more and more interested to find out about the communities that they're visiting and especially when they're as interesting and diverse and different as, as this one in Togian Islands with our eight different tribes that live here and their alternative and traditional lifestyles so that's, that's really quite topical in, in tourism trends at the moment um, so we can certainly assist communities in putting together the infrastructure, helping with the training, develop guiding skills, develop material, suitable places to stay, um, and helping to advise them and support them through that process while helping them to obtain funding in order to build these things in their own villages. And there's lots of interesting stuff here that's not being showcased. And I think unless you're the kind of tourist that you know, is here for a long time and can work out how to get to those places. So we'd, we'd really like to assist that, that process.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because
2: there's definitely a lot of interest, in, and some of the fishermen are also um, supplementing their income in the tourism season by offering trips. Um, we're talking as well to some of the local Bajo fishermen about becoming um, fishing trip operators. Um, so yeah, lots lots of opportunities, but it, it does require capital to develop tourism, and that's mm-hmm. something that our locals generally don't have. So, again, it's trying to link them up with those potential sources. But there is money available in government to, to help develop tourist villages and so on. So, mm. just trying to link all those things together now at the moment.
1: Yeah, Because I think that's something you realize when you, when you arrive here as a tourist, even though there are like, tourists and there are also a lot of German tourists, one has to say. But uh, it's still, I mean, it's like, like I said before, it's not like Bali. Because, it's, because one has to say, it's not so easy to get here. Right compared to it's okay, no problem <laughs> it's not so easy to get here uh I think it t- for us it took because we were like traveling by bus and from Makassar where we had our last interview with uh, Yaya um it took us in total maybe around like thirty hours to get here mm-hmm. even even more like just the, the the pure driving time, and so it doesn't feel like over tourismed in a way, yeah. not not yet I mean I think I could imagine that it's like quite delicate here as well like the level of pressure on the ecosystem on on the people as well when you have like eight ethnicities or tribes here um but it's for for us or for me it feels like the like maybe maybe rather the reason to be here than not to go
2: you're absolutely right Um, it's not an easy place to reach it does feel like the ends of the earth sometimes um and in some ways, that's a challenge, and in some ways, that's a blessing. Um, I would imagine a place as beautiful and as interesting as this could easily get overrun if if access was too difficult was too easy. Mm. Um, so, in some ways, that helps us to control tourist numbers to a number where the ecosystem can support. But I think what's really important, and i I discussed this with some of our government people this week. Is that we calculate the carrying capacity of fragile ecosystems like this before they start to promote large scale tourism. So we know exactly how many visitors we can support, that we have in place uh, the procedures and structures that allow us to do that in such a way that it doesn't harm either the culture or the ecosystem. I mean, both can be severely impacted by tourism we see seen many places um, around Southeast Asia that have had to close because of the impact of tourism. Um, very recently Maya Island in Thailand, Komodo Island also mm. going to have to close to do some restoration work. And that's really quite, um, that's quite difficult for communities that have come to rely on tourism. We also don't want that our communities rely completely on tourism. For example, in Bali, 80% of the locals are completely dependent on the income from tourism. And if there's ever an event, like a, a geological event, we're in the ring of fire, you know, these things do happen here, um, then the community really struggles. So what we want to do is not just secure the diversity of the ecosystem here, but also the diversity of income. So we're trying to build the fisheries, we're trying to build the farms, we're trying to build income through tourism, um, so that if anything happens in one respect, you know, the weather can seriously affect farming. Um geological or political events can seriously affect tourism. Um, so we'd like to try and create a community that's very stable um, and that have a, have a stable income regardless of fluctuations in markets or trends or um, other external factors that impact on their ability to, to make an income from any of those sources.
0: When it comes to culture and you said it's very impressive what was maybe something that impressed you the most or you found like maybe surprising um, when it comes to these different tribes?
2: Uh, there's many things that have surprised me. What <laughs> surprises me most is that the government haven't haven't promoted it. You know, it's really <laughs> unique. Um, you hear a lot of tourists come here because they've heard about the Bajo people, the, the sea nomads and they want to see how do they live. Um, But for me, that's not the most unique thing that Togians has to offer because we have other tribes that you just don't find anywhere else. And their culture is equally as interesting. Um, For example, the Babonko people that traditionally here in Togian Island is the seat of the Babonko tribe where they first began and they've spread out now to seven villages around the islands. There's only 20,000 Babonko in the world and most of them are in Togian Islands. And they have a unique way of living. They have a unique um, cuisine, They have unique practices, unique traditions, their own language. Um, They very much interact with the sea and particularly with the mangroves. So the Babonco tribe know practically every medicine that you can source in the mangroves. They know how to make salt from the mangroves. Um, They collect honey from the mangroves also. So, you know, these, these things for me are really fascinating because I can't find those anywhere except here. So it's these unique really unique little treasures that I'm trying to unwrap um, and when those communities say to me yes, we'd like to showcase what's different about us then we can support that process. Um, obviously we wouldn't try and promote communities that, that haven't expressed an interest in doing that because it's absolutely their right to, to keep that private but most of the tribes here are very proud of their culture very proud of the fact that they're different and they're ready to open up that to the world a little bit and uh, i think it's very good in terms of helping them preserve that cultural diversity when they see that other people place a value on it and not just themselves okay
1: do you do you have the feeling that when you have like these the, the Bobonko tribe or other people like on the islands what is their stance regarding tourism and i'm not meaning like money wise but rather like foreigners coming here are there is there like Is there like a hindrance from them or rather do they have like any thoughts about like people coming from the outside here?
2: They do have thoughts about it. They know there's something special here because tourists come. Um, They're not aware that these amazing coral reefs don't exist in Europe. Hmm. You know, I've tried to explain what the reason people come here is because they can't see this where they come from. That's why they they travel to the ends of the earth to come and see what's here. or to experience island life in in a pace that's completely different to what they may experience in their cities and jobs at home. Um, so for them they know there's something special, I'm not sure they can quite put their finger on what it is. And most people here don't have much experience of being in other parts of the world, so they they don't understand that what they have here is really unique and, and worth preserving. So I'm trying to highlight that for the local people. and and say to them, look, this is special, this is why people come. Um, so that's been, I think that's been useful for them, Open their eyes a little bit as to, as to what's going on. Um, yeah, it's, um, I think traditionally a lot of the villages, particularly those that are off the public boat route, they don't receive guests. So I was like a celebrity when I rocked up in a lot of villages and I had, you know, 30 kids following me around the village. They've got used to seeing me now and have become part of their family, but uh, they're very excited to see foreigners for them. You you can imagine life in a village where nothing ever changes and hasn't changed for hundreds of years. And then suddenly somebody from some far flung place rocks up in your village. It's exciting. Yeah. And especially the kids are excited. Um, And, Tourists are extremely well received in those villages that don't get many tourists. Um, they, they are treated like celebrities. People will be asking for your photo. It's kind of tourism reversed almost, you mm. know. You begin to wonder who's the visitor, yeah. Um, so they're excited. But traditionally here, I think the resorts um, have generated an income from tourism that hasn't trickled down to the villages. So we're trying to find ways to make that, um, that income from tourism circulate around the islands. So fish, fish has always been purchased by the resorts from the local fishermen. But vegetables, for example, come from outside the region. So we're trying to work with local farmers that they're the ones providing the vegetables. Resorts will be happier to buy from the local people than to have to import, import from the mainland. And then that money for, for food all circulates within the islands. Um, so I guess for them they need to find the key to how they can also benefit from that tourist dollar that enters here. Uh, so we're trying to open up those channels and allow that, allow that uh, income to flow into the villages. So this is what ecotourism is. It's not nature-based tourism, is something different. And that's, that's what Togians has done until now is, is to sell nature-based tourism. So people come to see the incredible and endemic nature and reefs and things here, but that doesn't benefit the villages. Yeah. So it's hard for them to, to see the value of tourism when, when that money's not trickling into the villages. So we really want to connect... Those channels so that everybody in the islands, all 50,000 residents here, benefit from preserving what they have to offer tourists here.
0: Do you know, like, I mean, it seems like in these villages, and if you're on an island, it's like um, you really rely on each other and the culture that lives in that village. It's uh, so like a strong community, probably. Um, do a lot of kids stay on the islands when they're like bigger, or older, or do they go somewhere else?
2: Almost, almost all of them stay. Hmm. You, do get, uh, you do get a few that go out for a while for school. Mm-hmm. So not all of our villages have school beyond the age of 12. So many mm-hmm. people leave school at age 12 because they don't want to move to a different village or go outside of the islands. Or their parents maybe don't want them to go because they are such a close family.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, so some of them will move to another village or town for schooling and if any of them go to university, which is quite rare here, we don't have many kids that go on to third level education, um, but we do have some, um, then they always have to go outside of the islands. But generally, often they come back once they're, once they're finished. Um, unfortunately, there's not really a, a wide range of jobs here in order to support that. I mean, there are jobs in the National Park for people who are interested in forestries and, um, and conservation and marine science and so on. Um, but the majority of people here tend to follow their family and they're either working in farming or fishing. So those would be the two main industries. Tourism would probably be the third biggest. Mm. Um, so again, you know, we're trying to work with, with those current industries and see how they can be improved to address poverty here. We don't want to change things. We want to improve things. Mm. Um, but I would also love to see some young people here aspiring to become conservationists, to have an interest in the science as well. Um, so we're thinking to do some programmes to support that as well. Um, we'd like to get into the schools and also do other educational programmes, teaching people about reef ecology and pharmacology, that kind of thing. Um, and maybe plant a little seed that... Actually, this is a job that potentially you could do that would really help your communities. Um yeah, just trying to open up the possibilities, um, expose them to other things that might exist besides just following in the, in the usual family footsteps. Most people are very happy to be farmers and, and fishermen here. It's a beautiful life. You know, they don't have a lot of stress in their jobs. Yes, there there is poverty here in the islands, but, you know, they have a lot more quality time to enjoy with their families than people in Europe might have. Um, they focus on what's important. They have great relationships with their neighbours. Um, and also, even with neighbouring villages, you know, often we don't even know the people that are living next door to us in the in the house next door. So, I'm very envious in some ways of the lifestyle that they have here. Uh, you don't hear of people dying of heart attacks here. You know, you don't hear of people with mental health disorders. You, you know, so there's a lot of benefits to living at this kind of pace. And I think we can learn a lot from these communities about how to prioritise. Uh, what's important in terms of work-life balance.
1: No. Is it also, uh, especially that, like the, the um, different way of seeing how life works or how life can work, is it also uh, lead maybe to some, let's say, conflicts in in your work, like when when you were here and you, I mean, you, you were traveling for <laughs> quite a while, but uh, still?
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, I'm a European, I will always be a European and I come with a European mindset, so... I've had to learn a lot here in terms of slowing down, doing things at the pace that the locals do things at, uh, to be patient. I'm pretty sure I was sent here to learn patience, um, that things can't be rushed. Mm. Um, And I have to balance this somehow with a sense of urgency that we need to preserve the world we live in. Um, And we can't really afford to wait any longer in order to do that. So I have a daily conflict about wanting to do things super fast, but having to do them at the, at the local speed. Um, and that's a process for me. It's a, it's a personal journey that I'm going through, which um, I'm very grateful for also.
1: You told us yesterday that uh, in, in Europe there is like kind of this linear causal life. You know, you do something and then something happens, and that's the reason why it happened. Uh, and here it was more like a circular way of living. You were saying, right? Maybe yeah. can you can explain. I found it very interesting yeah, that's true. because, like, it's like how you see life and how you say like your day-to-day being, which is so different. Maybe you can like explain a bit more about that.
2: Sure. So my exploration into this came about by developing an understanding that uh, the local people find it really hard to think into the future. Um, so I'd been chatting to the locals about coral, coral destruction, about crown of thorns, and, and one old man said to me, but how can we think about five years' time when we can't even think about tomorrow? Mm. And I started to wonder, well, what's that about? Why can they not think about tomorrow? So I did some research, I talked some more to the locals, and eventually I found, um, I found some written documents uh, from some Australians who'd been living with the Bajo community for over 10 years. One of them was actually one of my bosses in a previous conservation job. And they had unraveled that actually the thinking here is circular. So people don't think in straight lines in this linear fashion that we do in, in Europe, um, so we, what we do today affects what we do tomorrow. What we do tomorrow affects what happens in the future. Here, they're thinking about waking up, getting something to eat, going fishing, going to bed, and then tomorrow the whole process starts all over again. So there's not really this long-term or linear thinking. Uh, there's a lack of understanding that ca- cause and effect are a thing. So, And imagine this came from a community that were nomadic so they never got to see the consequences of what happened in an area after they'd performed an action there. So they'd fish there and for a few days they lived in their boats and then they moved on. By the time they came back to that place, it might be a year later, two years later, five years later, anything that they'd done that had a consequence already had recovered because of their absence. So now that they're living in one spot, we're starting to see the impacts of some of their ways of living. Um, so that's a, that's a new thing that they will have to learn to understand if they're to address some of the ecological challenges that they're going to face soon. Um, So trying to... How how do you... This is my challenge. How do you start to change the mindset of somebody that is not used to thinking into the future? I mean, Europeans, with our cold seasons, um, if we weren't able to plan for the future, we wouldn't have survived. So we've evolved and adapted to be long-term thinkers. When you live in the tropics and food is abund- abundantly available every day, every season, then you never had to do that long-term planning in order to secure your own survival. Um, but now that our ecosystems around the world are being degraded, we really need people to be able to think in a longer-term fashion. So this is a big challenge. I still haven't quite cracked it. So if there's any social scientists out there that, <laughs> that think they can help, you know, do, do help me shed some light on it.
1: It's a bit like the difference between like, hunter-gatherers, even though it's like on the sea here, and uh, like the event of, uh, or the dawn of farming. You know? yeah. When, when, like, when like, uh, society changed like, thousands of years ago from like, hunter-gatherers to farming and to so, uh, like this kind of economy which is all over the world now, except for like, in these little pockets you have here or somewhere else around the planet. But yeah, it's really interesting. So they, like are the still,
2: they are still hunter-gatherers here to a great extent, even when it comes to the vegetation. So the farms that they have, they're mostly growing coconuts, cloves, corn, and all of that is exported from the islands. They're not eating that themselves. Um, and then they'll go out and they'll gather wild vegetables to cook at home. So, so there's still all that knowledge about how to find food in the wild. That still exists right now. I don't know for how much longer it will exist if the, if the kids aren't learning this, but I'd really like to preserve that. Um, as well as helping them to diversify the sources of local vegetables that they have available to them here, especially if fish stocks are are dwindling, then vegetables are going to become even more important in the future.
0: But is there like any written um, documents or is it all um, told by language and stories and your ancestors, like all these traditions?
2: They're all verbal, almost Mm -hmm. all of them are verbal. Um, when you typically go into any house in Togain Islands, you will not find a single book. Mm. So there's not this culture. And in fact, they've asked me, why do foreigners read books? Um, and for them, it's it's very much a verbal culture. You know, we have this... Um, we're very insulated in how we learn as well. Um, so, you know, we'll, we'll look things up on the Internet by ourselves, or we'll read a book ourselves, or we'll go to the library by ourselves. And here they don't have those resources, so they've they've lived without internet, without phone signal. Everything is passed on verbally. I remember when I first came to the island, I said, how do I communicate with everybody? You know, I can't possibly go to 59 different villages and charter little boats to get into every crack and corner of the Togian Islands. And uh, somebody who who owned a resort, uh, been here for quite some time, she said, just go to the Sunday market in Wakai and tell somebody. She said, before you know it, everybody will know. (laughs) And I can tell you for sure, verbal communication travels extremely fast here. You will do something and 10 minutes later, somebody will have already heard about it. Mm -hmm. So this is, I have to tap into these existing communication channels and and use what already exists very well. Um, But it it is a challenge to reach some villages that are a bit further out or who don't you know, we are too far from, from Wakai to, to really engage with that hub. So I'm still trying to identify how are the best ways to communicate. Because it. there's also
1: uh, almost no, um, how do you say, like, uh, you, you can't use your cell phone here. No. no. Signal, no, yeah. No signal. You'd be better right. off with a pigeon. <laughs> yes, right. Which is something that's really interesting, especially for us. I mean, like, we are children of our generation, I suppose, and we like, use it quite a lot, even though not as much here while traveling as we would at, back at home. But I think we haven't like, used the cell phone in such a long time, for a long time. Mm. So almost a week now. Mm. Well, which that is, must which be nice. Is to- which is totally <laughs> fine, you know, but uh, that's something that's hard to imagine these days.
2: Yeah. There are uh, communication networks starting to be built this year around the islands. So there's a plan to put in 14 communication towers. And the villagers know it's coming. And they also are aware they don't know how to use the internet. So they're asking now for training and using computers and using smartphones. And I'm I'm keen to help facilitate that. Because I'd really like that they learn how to use the internet as a learning resource. As a, as a source of lots of different solutions and, and ideas and inspiration. Um, rather than just for social media or whatever. So... Um, we're looking into ways that we can assist that process. Um, I still haven't seen the schedule of yeah, when places will, will receive their signal, but I know they're building towers in Melengi and a few other places, which will make my job a little bit easier. But in, in some ways I'm a little sad because that's one of the things that's unique here is you can detach yourself from your electronics. It's, when you come here, you're taking an electronic holiday. Um, and I think that's very healthy for us. Uh, people still have conversations here. Yes. You know, in any other hostel you go to or guest house, everybody's sitting there clicking away on their phones and, and we lose that opportunity to interact with each other. I mean, we had a lovely conversation last night for a long time after dinner mm. and it's hard to imagine that in a place where everybody has access to internet. Yeah. Um, so it's, for me, it's a little bit of a treasure to live in a place that isn't, um, isn't ruled by the electronic world.
1: But don't you think that won't change a lot when you have like cell phone towers here?
2: I think it will change a lot I think it will change a lot
1: sure. I did, like a couple of years ago I did my master's thesis in Laos and it was basically about how the usage of internet on mobile phones has changed the way of life for people between 15 and 20 years old mm-hmm. and I was talking with like younger kids who basically like us haven't seen anything else but also with like older kids and they like remember when they went out for playing football and uh, they see like a lot of the positive stuff because I had like this one, uh, this one thing where he said, of course we are still playing like football or soccer. Uh, we still do it, but now we just don't go there and wait for someone to show up. So now we just like start uh, phoning around or we ask someone via message, uh, are you up to like playing today? And they would say like, no, I don't feel like it. So then they don't like do it. So that's one thing that changed for this particular child I was talking to. But like especially like the older ones, they like saw what has changed. Mm-hmm. What you just said basically that people that like, sit around and I mean we we've been on ferries here where everyone which look like the, the, the train in, in Germany for example, you know, where like everyone is on the cell phone all the time. And I don't know. Like we we have like this discussion a lot of times. Yeah, it
0: always comes up for some reason. Yeah. Because I mean also for us travelling it's a lot easier than maybe a couple of years ago because you can book your I don't know Car via Grab or Uber or whatever, and you have more insight and it's cheaper maybe. But then it was more adventurous maybe um, a couple years ago. And um, but then you you also meet people through like some platforms maybe. It's I wouldn't say it's necessarily worse, but it's just it's just changes, you know. Um, Yeah, It's
2: just different. different. I mean, I I appreciate how the internet um, is a huge source of information for me. You know, I'll go into villages and they'll say, oh, this is happening, w- what is it? And they think I'm, you know, they think I know everything about everything. Um, I don't know if they know I get all the information from me. <laughs> <laughs> but it will be anything from medical advice to pests that they find in their farms to um, something that's affecting their fish or their seaweed production. Or, and I'll say, oh, I'll check it out next time I'm in Wakai. And I'll get back to you. And, you know, I can easily go and access that information mm. um, and then come back and say, okay, maybe this is what it is. What do you think? Does that sound like it might be right? Um, so I'd love that they would be able to have that access themselves and not rely on an external person for that. Um, but I'm also worried that it will just begin to disintegrate, as it has in the West, the community bonds that they have. Mm. I hope that doesn't happen because that's really that's really important here for them in terms of their survival as well but you know ordering grabs and Ubers it doesn't matter when you live in a place with no roads you know so can uh, a taxi yeah. boat
0: maybe or something <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah or Amazon probably won't, Amazon, won't, won't yeah. be here <laughs> as well <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah we've no post service <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah I get my post in Empana yeah. and they have to send it by boat from there so yeah. I yeah. think some things will change and hopefully some things change for the better I think inevitably some things will change for the worse but you know um it will bring with it opportunities and challenges and i think it's our job as an organization to try and maximize the opportunities and minimize the challenges
0: it would be nice like for all the villages on the islands to have like the possibility to share maybe their pain or their like values or like i mean do they have a lot of like a lot of um, common stuff like when you travel like to different villages do you see things that are very similar that like they have things they could really um, benefit from having like a knowledge platform or something like that sure
2: sure I mean one of the things I found was an application that um, allows you to search different buyers for different commodities Mm. so if you have coconuts or cloves to sell you can you can search the actual price you know Mm. here they have to buy whatever the the buyer in Mpana
0: okay.
2: demands, you know, and they may not be getting the best possible price. So, you know, that, for example, all of our farming communities, that would open up opportunities and, and help ensure that they get a fair deal for the work that they do. Mm. Um, checking weather and so, mind you, they're like weather stations themselves, these people, they know the seas so well, um, but being able to check weather before going on a long journey, you know, um, that might also help as well So there's, yeah. I can see lots of useful applications um, and especially for the kids in terms of education the curriculum here is not highly developed and uh, I think there's a lot of information, you know there's heaps of education programs that I could just lift off the internet but you can only stream them
0: mm-hmm.
2: and it's always disappointing to me that those are not available to our communities um, and you try to explain to somebody in America I love your program but you know I live in a world where there's no internet can you release a, a digital version for me that I can play? And they're like, what? Yeah. You know, it's for them, it just seems like a fairy tale, you know? Um, so we are, we are disadvantaged, not just in terms of our location, but also in terms of our access to communication networks. And I think opening that up will, could, has the potential mm. to really benefit the communities if it's used in a constructive way.
1: Yeah. Is there um, still like, some sort of communication in between the islands and in between the different tribes or is like everyone doing basically their own
2: oh no there's heaps of communication they all know what's happening in other villages they yeah trends very quickly spread (laughs) News spread i i made i trained a village in the very north in waleakodi uh it's the second last northern island um how to make coconut oil and the most southerly village Uh, I got a message from the National Park that they want me to go there and train them. So, you know, (laughs) somehow the information traveled over 80 kilometers to get to the most southerly village. And they know that there's somebody out there who knows how to train people to make virgin coconut oil. Yeah.
1: Which is a huge distance, yeah, Without
2: any yeah. phone network, yeah? yeah. Who needs a phone yeah. network? You know, <laughs> these people have it all down. They have it all down to yeah. down to a T. They know exactly how to communicate without these things. For mm-hmm. us that that are not used to it, then it's a challenge. But for them, it's how they've always lived so they know how to get information now
1: mm. well, uh, so for that you have like for example the markets where like a lot of people like congregate or be uh, are, like at one point and that's like one of the best ways for communication and communication in between like far away villages or is it need also to like you know who
2: the gossips are yeah. mm. you need to find the gossips and we have a word in Togian islands and ampana for gossip and it's carlota. carlota and if you say this word in other parts of indonesia they will have no idea what it is but here it's, the thing. it's a thing, it's a well-known thing, and people have time to gossip. People have time to sit and spread information. <laughs> Our heads in the West are so full of information, we wouldn't even have time to, to think about that trivial stuff, but in a place where, you know, nothing new happens most of the time, anything new is a source of gossip, so it travels very, very fast. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's, it's something you really see like when you or for us when we're traveling you have like people sitting on the side of the road for hours and hours and you it, it seems like they're doing nothing for, for, <laughs> yeah. for, for, for like the western eyes but there's like a lot of stuff going on
2: there's there, a lot of stuff going on yeah. they're they're building their political knowledge they're cementing their relationships they're learning about opportunities they're yeah their business relationships are formed with a cup of coffee on the side of the pavement yes. you know Sure. Um, deals are made and uh, are made and carried out, and and I've I've learned to be part of that world. And it's um, in the beginning, it was kind of weird and funny, and now it's become my my normality. So yeah, you get used to it eventually.
1: Is there something that you, uh, as someone who lived in the West for years and worked there, but also like knows this world and, and quote unquote here very good as well, is there something you still miss? From, from like Western society or cheese. Europe? <laughs> okay, In yeah. a place
2: where there's no fridges, I would love some good cheese. <laughs> I've been looking into that. There's a lot of goats here. You know? I, reckon, I reckon we can build an eco-fridge just using evaporation as a principle and make some good goat cheese. But uh, yeah, let's start with the commodities first that they're already making and see if we can improve those. And then I'll start to introduce yeah. them to some new ones.
1: Yeah. It's a funny like every we talked to to the other um two German guys, and they like lived in Bali for some time, and they're also like on the road for like half a year and that's one of like the the questions we oh yeah sorry that's one of like the sorry that's one of like the questions we we have to like other people like what is it you miss and like it's like cheese mm-hmm. wine uh and what's and the third thing I'm not sure. Yogurt, maybe, bread. <laughs> and bread,
0: dark bread. But that's a German yeah. thing, I, I yeah. guess. Because people love we're the rye right bread. bread uh? Yeah, we have
2: like I miss bread. my family. I mean, I do. I miss. I miss my family, and it's not easy for me because I'm a volunteer. You know, it's difficult for me to travel home. Um, so yeah, it would be nice to have more access to to see the people that I that I love and miss. But you know, until then, I I kind of became an adopted. Family member of many different families here. Uh, they have a nickname for me in every village almost that I work with. So, in one little village in, in Loi, they call me Stamalo, which means Stephanie Masurakat Loi. So, it's Stephanie Loy community. Mm. So, they kind of adopted me as, as part of their wider family. and So, that feels nice as well. The longer I'm here, the more firm and strong my connections are as well. Um, it can be a bit of a lonesome job sometimes, especially working in new villages where I haven't yet made those relationships. And mm. people are a little wary in the beginning of uh, strangers, curious, but wary. It takes time to really, to to develop a really strong relationship. Um, but yeah, in, in almost all of the villages I work with, I I have now good relationships and and I can continue to build on those. And once that good relationship is there, it opens up many opportunities in terms of work and trust and cooperation. And,
1: and it also ha- helped that you learned Bahasa, probably. Bahasa yeah, village,
2: eh? yeah. I think it would be impossible to do my job if you'd, if I hadn't, because uh, the majority of the villages that I go to, there's not a single person that's fluent in English, so a few people might know a few words, but uh, sometimes I go a month, two months, I don't I don't have a single conversation in English um so yeah that's that's something I really had to learn my government meetings are in bahasa I have to write proposals in bahasa um and not having ever had a bahasa lesson you know it's shaky at best but it's improving slowly slowly it's improving and people are very forgiving when I make mistakes especially in the the formal procedures you know there's very there's day to day bahasa and there's very formal bahasa and you know I can speak day to day bahasa but my formal bahasa is terrible um, but people are very forgiving and they understand that I'm from outside and, you know, I, I don't necessarily know these things. And I'm very apologetic. I'll say, look, I'm just sorry if I if I say anything wrong. That's a, that's the thing in Indonesia. You do that. You know, if you've had a guest at your house and when you're leaving, they will say, we're very sorry if we did anything wrong. And in the beginning, I was like, what do you mean? You didn't do anything wrong. Now I realize that's actually just part of the culture. Mm. It's part of that very polite culture that exists in Indonesia where... Uh, people just apologise, just in case mm. there's something and you didn't happen to mention mm. it. You know.
1: Better be safe than really sorry. <laughs> yeah, <the>
2: exactly.
0: <laughs> when you come to a new village, is there like anything like um, to gain the trust of the people? Is it like an icebreaker or something that you notice that helps to gain the trust of the people? Maybe
2: humour helps a lot. Yeah. These people don't take themselves too seriously, and I think it helps that I'm from a country that also doesn't take themselves too seriously. <laughs> And I find the Irish humor is actually very, very similar to the Indonesian humor. Um, So that's where we build our trust. You know, Mm -hmm. we come in, we have a laugh, we drink coffee together, uh, we sit on the street. um, And the more humor I can engage in in the beginning, the faster those relationships get built. Um, And it helps people to relax. Mm -hmm. You know, if I went in with a clipboard and a pen and a Mm -hmm. suit being very (laughs) officious, I think probably I wouldn't get anywhere. Um, but it also—I've understood that you have to be gentle with these people. Also, um, if you push or force, you will get nowhere. It's not their culture, so you have to gently and in a humorous and friendly and very soft way uh, present yourself and and your ideas and and reassure them that you're there to help. And um, and very very quickly, it very quickly I get received. It's such a warm welcome in every single place that I go. it would be hard to imagine rocking up in some stranger's village and and being given a bed to sleep in um, food to eat you know no matter what I need it's provided and these are people who live on a dollar or two dollars a day mm. um, so the hospitality is incredible in the villages, which is another reason I'd love to open it up to to visitors you know to experience that I think it's it's also um you know, Islamic countries, the hospitality is is a huge thing for them, and some of the best hospitality I've ever had is in in Muslim communities. Um, for them, guest is god. You know, and you mm-hmm. are treated you are treated like a god. The best the best china will be brought out. The you know the best bed linen. Kids will be cleared from a room so that you can sleep in a double bed by yourself, and there'll be ten kids on a mattress in the next room. You know. So really, I, I get very beautiful, hospitable treatment wherever I go. And, and that's softened that's my journey as well. It's made me feel very welcome.
0: Do you ever um, notice any hesitation because you're a woman traveling alone? Or is it nothing you experience?
2: You mean so from far? other people or from my point of view?
0: From your point of view. Also, like, point of view. Yeah. Outside of tokens,
2: yeah, I feel very safe here. Yeah, I feel incredibly safe here. Yeah, um, I mean, obviously, as a f- lone female traveller, I've mm. had negative experiences, I think. I don't think I ever met a lone female traveller who didn't. Mm. That's just the reality of our world. Um, it's not a safe world for women, especially women who are alone. Mm. Um, but I find in Indonesia, people are very protective, especially of lone women. And I, I sailed all over Indonesia on the public passenger boats, the government passenger boats. You might have... 2,000 passengers on a boat and on every journey I made somebody undertook the responsibility of making sure that I was safe mm. and sometimes it was somebody half my age but some young guy will always you know every time I stand up where do you want to go I want to go to the toilet do you need me to escort you there no it's fine you mm. know. where do you want I'm going to the deck I need food and they, they take on to look after you um, mm. and I think that's that's a very beautiful thing that Indonesia has to offer in terms of travelers and you know, to the countries I've f- felt safest in are Indonesia and Malaysia. Mm. I think it also helps that they're Muslim, yeah. a Muslim culture, in you know, alcohol doesn't feature that much in the culture as well. Um, yeah. So that, that also helps to make me feel safer. But I have no hesitation of going anywhere in Togian Islands by myself. Uh, it doesn't even cross my mind. Mm. And, you know, for, for somebody who's travelled extensively in lots of different countries, it's a relief not to have to worry about yeah. those things. Yeah. So, single women travelers. <laughs> game, <laughs>
1: what do you think is, like, uh, what are um, maybe one or two of, like, the main differences regarding culture and how people are um, here in the Togans or in Sulawesi uh, compared to, let's say, Central Europe?
2: Oh, two main differences.
1: <laughs> or one, or like, one that comes to um, mind, maybe, just...
2: The pace of life, the pace of life, I think, that's huge here, you know. In the beginning, I I used to think, how do they get anything done? But then I realized they're not sitting around doing nothing. The sitting around is part of the doing. So that's when the deals are made and are made and secured. That's when the relationships are built. That's, you know, but it used to feel to me like I was doing nothing, drinking five five hours coffee a day and and just chatting, you know and then I realized that had a function it wasn't wasting time Um, you know, we're taught in the West that uh, time is money neither of those concepts actually exist they're man-made concepts Um, and that's just something that we were told in order to make us productive because in the West we're not seen as valuable unless we're economically productive Look at how we treat our kids and and older people. Here, older people are revered because productivity doesn't enter into how you're valued. How you're valued here often depends on how closely you follow your religion, how much you help your community members. And to me, that's a much more real value to put on people than how much you produce in your bank account. Um, so, I think that's also something we can really learn here. People here are valued on their contributions. So, if somebody's really funny, <laughs> even they're the laziest person in the world, they'll be highly valued because they have entertainment value. You know, they make their community laugh. Even they don't earn a penny, they're very much valued. The older people are valued because they have the wisdom of
1: generations. Mm. So, um, it's ra- rather the social capital, so to say.
2: Yeah, like, I, guess so. yeah. I guess so. I guess so. I guess so. You know they're the older people are seen as the ones with the most skills here in the West. I see that we somehow don't trust the skills of our older people and and you know they're sentenced to a life alone and and of little value um, whereas here they're revered
1: yeah. yeah, it really feels like it when you when you hear when you see like how people live how they just are in a way, just just like being an onlooker, someone who stands in the corner and, like, see how everything evolves or revolves around you. It's really something, I think. I mean, I'm not sure if we have, like, learned it, you know. I think you have to be somewhere, at a, some, at a place to, like, really learn something. But, like, mm. uh, you, you see it, for sure. Yeah. yeah. So what is, um, what is, like, one of the, the future... Maybe not like the future-future goal, because we learned it's rather done in circuits than, than uh, linear. But uh, what is like your next big project? Is it like the Crown of Thorns? Uh, yeah, uh, so
2: we've, we've just finished that project. There was still a little bit of follow-up work to do with that together with resorts to finish cleaning some reefs that we didn't quite completely manage to clean within the time we had available. Um, and then I'll produce some reports. We have a marine scientist looking into the data that we collected Um, And obviously the research from that project is is ongoing, so I'll be focusing on that. But we um, are in the process of trying to establish an office for our organization in Mackay. I'm just waiting for a letter from the government. So as soon as we get that letter, I guess I'll be trying to establish our base. And that's going to be really important. um, And a space not just for community members where they can drop in and get information and engage, but also where... um, Guests and visitors can can come and find out more about the community. So that's I'm really excited about this opportunity to to actually have a base, and uh, not least of all because I won't be homeless anymore. Mm. <laughs> I will actually have a room. Um, but yeah, just the opportunities to create a space that's just for the community, um, and that's going to allow us to also house longer term volunteers. So potentially I'll have a few longer-term work partners who can help with our goals. Um, And also looking, currently designing the website for the foundation, uh, trying to get all of our uh, social media and everything else sorted out now. So pressing ahead with that, looking for funding for other projects that we have in the pipeline. We're also looking into... Uh, doing a few partnership projects. Um, one of those is a kind of castaway-style beach cleaning of remote beaches. So we're going to have a call for volunteers who want to come and live at rough in the, <laughs> in the wilds of Togian Islands. Uh, we'll be cleaning remote beaches and doing brand audits of the waste that we find um, and also trying to work out ways potentially that we can use those materials creatively. Um, but that also will hopefully inform... Um, our lobbying work with government as to how we start to reduce the plastics and single-use plastics that we find on the islands, and try to find healthier alternatives.
1: I think there is really like something or one would say like a market for that, especially for people in the West. When you like, like do it yourself, just as a general term, it's like this really coming up big thing. We have like a friend of us he. Not I, mean, I don't know if we can say the name. Let, let's not say the name. But anyway, he, kno- he knows who he is if he, <laughs> if he listens to it. But like he has a YouTube show together with a friend, and they uh, like go into the forest and they're like building stuff from from the wood they find. You know, like mm-hmm. I know like like I wouldn't say like forts, but like structures. Let's say structures, and um, it just went through the roof. Pe- people love it. They like mm. want to see like what it is to go back to your roots in a way mm-hmm. and I, I know of like similar projects on, on youtube podcasts like in the, the whole world of media are coming tv shows are coming up of, of people just going back to the roots living as hunter-gatherers mm. even though i think a lot of them don't really know what it is like it's like yeah. a, a very nice vacation yeah <laughs> b- b- <to laughs> it's like they're
2: playing at it mm. instead of living yeah. it yeah yes <laughs>
1: But I could see that in the future, when you have like people here, they just want to live remote and like no cell phone, no. They should just
2: come to Togian
1: Islands. <laughs> yeah, 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 our communities yeah. are
2: still doing that. Do yeah, know? for
1: sure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. So, but I don't want to want to interrupt. So that's one of like the bigger projects for, yeah. for the future.
2: And also the waste. I mean, we have a proposal now with government to put in place. At the moment, we don't have any waste facilities on Togian Islands, so communities themselves have to burn their plastics resorts have to do the same there is an incinerator in Makai, which is an open incinerator that's the only facility that we have that i'm aware of uh, so we've applied to government for funds for um, a waste bank uh, recycling facilities so we can start to place a value on these waste materials and the hope that in the future they're not wasted mm. um so ways that will enable the community to receive an income for the waste that they collect and process, um, and that that gets reused back into, into a material rather than um, becoming marine litter. Um, so that's, that's going to be important for us. I'm, I'm really hoping we get that funding. If not, then I'll continue to look for sources of funding. But I think that's, that's super important for Toguian Islands and uh, will lead to healthier communities and happier visitors. Um, I mean, it's a problem throughout Indonesia, but they're starting now to look at it uh, across the across the whole of Indonesia. So I think in the next five years we'll see big changes in terms of the waste. Mm. Mm. I hope so, at least. But here, you know, we're quite lucky in that we don't have any major cities nearby. You know, we could really make this a super clean, super clean place if we had the right facilities. So uh, myself and another volunteer, Sika. Um, are really pushing that at the moment. So, together with the Department of Environment. um, And they're planning to do a a big, they call it in Indonesian, I don't know what it translates as in English, but a socialization, like a training with the community around the waste issue. Um, And I've kind of said to them, well, that's great, but unless there's actually an infrastructure, how are you going to change anything? Um, So hopefully it's arrived just at the right moment that we've put in this application, so... Still waiting to hear I checked the day before yesterday <laughs> still no progress yet but yeah it's still in process they say
1: so do you feel like there is a change uh, happening regarding uh, especially the government or is there like still some sort of like are they like do they beware of of that of like foreigners coming in doing like NGO work
2: I think a bit of both um, I do tend to get invited to a lot of meetings and discussions and forums and, and I was at one two, two nights ago, it was the Indonesian Guide Association invited me to come to a meeting um, and the first topic on the agenda was plastic and waste. So you know it's encouraging to think that the local people are putting this on the agenda, it wasn't me put it on the agenda, it was them. Um, I'm obviously trying to raise awareness about how this impacts on the community, the health, the ecosystem and tourism. And I think we've got a, a very big role to play in that as a foundation, but it is central government are, are starting to make some policies, obviously with a developing country, it's difficult to put in place all the infrastructure because the capital's not necessarily there um, but provided it's run like a business, there's no reason you know why why these things can't progress um, in in developing countries because salaries are quite low, potentially you can cover the costs of managing the waste through recycling whereas in the west that's very difficult because of minimum wage so I think there are definite opportunities here Um, we just really need the infrastructure in order to do that and uh, I'll keep I'll keep pushing I mean I it's a big priority certainly for the resorts as well they spend a tremendous amount cleaning their beaches every week tremendous amount you know they they have staff every morning go down and clean the beaches. It has an impact on fisheries. It has an impact on tourism. So, yeah, it's, it's something that we have to tackle and, and we can't continue to hide from the issue. And I think there's a greater awareness around the world than ever before about the issue of plastic. So it's really a, a key time to, to capitalize on that. And, you know, I, I want to make sure that tourists that come here are responsible also that they're bringing their refillable water bottles, that they're thinking about the plastic that they use while they're here, that they're taking their batteries and things back out to the mainland, the things that we can't burn or can't dispose of safely here. Um, but we're also, for example, our communities that we've taught to make the coconut oil, all the little glass bottles we collect on the beach, many resorts now are, are passing those on to the communities that they can be used for the coconut oil. So. We're trying to reuse as much as possible, and we have a. I'm doing a joint project together in February with Lea Beach Resort in Kodi, and we have a school coming from Canada, from Montreal. Um, they're going to be doing a project in Loi Village around um, some education stuff in the in the school, but also looking at the issue of flip flops and how those can be reused and recycled into different items. So they've been doing about a year of research already. Um, as to what they're how they're going to develop their program and we simply facilitate that but really ingenious kids coming up with mm. great ideas <laughs> you know we're trying to look how we can turn these into usable items sellable items as well or things that the community needs um, and they're really I'm very impressed with how this group are are looking into the issues and all the things they need to consider
0: that's so funny because the flip-flop, we saw flip-flops everywhere, like in, in, in the rivers, on the beaches, plenty of flip-flops. And even like um, when you go like to a rural village and you see like all the old people, they are all wearing flip-flops. So it's yeah. like something that really... There's, there's things, masses yeah. of them,
2: masses. I cleaned the beach at Buka Buka last month and I got two sacks of flip-flops just from one beach, one mm. long beach. Um, and one sack of glass bottles. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we need to reuse these things. Um, mm-hmm. If there's any flip-flop uh, producers listening, please make them more long-lasting and more hard-wearing. You know, we need to look at the design of these things around the world. We need to look at the design, how we can make things less disposable, how they can become more hard-wearing, more long-lasting, more repairable. Um, so, yeah.
1: Or more, more biodegradable, right?
2: Yeah. Or, well, yeah, I mean, ideally less less disposable, but yeah. uh, eventually when they have to be disposed of, yeah, let's let's. Make have, it like, that straw they do sandals.
1: I don't know. Like straw sandals could be a better alternative. But they don't yeah.
0: last that long. They don't yeah, 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 last very yeah. really long, yeah. So yeah. Probably, yeah. I had straw flip-flops. Yeah, yeah, me back problem. in the days. Yeah.
2: yeah. Yeah, they're not great in the rain either.
0: No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. the sand, and no, it doesn't even make sense.
1: Okay, but so uh, looking at everything, would you say you are still, uh, you're still positive or you're, you, you stay still positive regarding... you change? have
2: to. Yeah, I think the point at which you decide you're not, is the time to, to change your career. Um, we can't afford to give up. We can't afford. Um, and I'm quite lucky in that I have huge amounts of energy, huge amounts of enthusiasm and really very little other distractions. Um, I can focus 100% of my time on this. Um, you know, I don't have a marriage, I don't have kids, I don't have a job, a full-time job. I don't, you know, this, this is what I do all day, every day. So I'm able to really throw myself into the work and, and if we didn't believe that it was possible, I think it would be, it would be impossible to continue with any sense of en- enthusiasm or investment in it. So it is possible. Um, when we work together, I think that's the most important thing. And you know, often people say to me, But you know, what can I do? I'm just one person. And I say, Well, you know what? Try spending a night inside a mosquito net with a mosquito and see how small you can be and still make a difference. You know, <laughs> so we all have a role to play. Um, and wherever we are in the world, there's always a role to play. Um, I, I get a lot of motivation and inspiration from looking at the younger generations and how they seem to be the ones right now coming up with innovations that are really struggling and trying to, to resolve this because they're the ones with most at stake. Um, the older generations, I'm quite disappointed in how they've responded to these things. But, you know, I look at today's kids and it's it's almost all young people coming up with these crazy, innovative, genius solutions and... And I think, well, you know what? If they can do it, I can do it. Mm. So, yeah, I, I keep trying. I keep trying. The moment I don't feel like trying anymore, it's time to go home, for sure.
0: It's mm. so very inspiring. Yeah.
1: And <laughs> yeah. Very very good uh, ending words, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so uh, we've been here with uh, Stephanie Garvin. Uh, do I pronounce that correct? Yeah. Um, thank you for your time. It was wonderful talking to you. Thank you, guys. Um, I've been Christoph. You're still mm-hmm. Lydia. I do it every time. <laughs> I, I am still Christoph. But, uh, <laughs> uh, so goodbye from my side. Bye. And Stephanie, goodbye from your side.
2: Goodbye and thank you.
1: <laughs> right. Uh, everything else will be found in our show notes. Yeah. See you, or rather, hear you on our next episode, wherever that may be. Hello, you guys. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. If you have questions for us or our guests, or if you just want to see where we are right now and what we are up to, you can find us on Instagram under coffee, rice and questions. Again, thanks for tuning in and stay curious.